0: You're listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Greetings from the Orange Beacon of Broadcasting, and welcome to another episode of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, known as Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, inmate number one, and currently I'm afflicted with the severe delusions of grandeur and the loss of basic motor functions when confronted with a broken vending machine. Joining me this episode, we have inmate number two, who is suffering from bouts of insomnia and recurring tinnitus in his ear that sounds like a baby crying, Mr. Christopher Jarvis. Hello. With Chris, we have inmate number three, who has recently been dealing with a loss of mathematical reasoning and acute paranoia. He believes everybody in the Prism star system is out to get him, Mr. Alan Stroud. I'm sure, that was the intro for Grant. And lastly, our final inmate quite simply believes himself to be a large Terran quadruped of the bovine persuasion, Mr. Grant Walcott.
1: It's got nothing to do with belief structure, it's fact.
0: Now this evening the inmates are in fact in charge as our very efficient Chief of Operations Mr John Stabler has sneakily filed for some R&R and left us to sun himself on the beaches of Portugal. So the crew would like to apologise in advance for the quality of the edit of this show, the quality of the content of this show and the quality of the publishing of this show and in fact the quality of anything else that John looks after, so we don't have to. So with that said, let's jump straight into it and find out what the team have been up to. Let's start with Mr. Jarvis.
2: It's hard to know what to say. I've had a really interesting week. I can't tell you about any of it.
0: (laughs) I tell you what, why don't you tell us about the non-interesting stuff? We'll go with that instead.
2: Yeah, no, essentially, I mean, I've had an interesting week or so with Escape Velocity. Having been through all of my recordings for everything that I'd done so far, I gave myself a bit of a panic when I realised that I had some significant gaps, not just in terms of sort of odd little characters here and there that I I hadn't actually yet cast or approached the actors to do, but even in one instance, an entire scene that I just forgot to record. So, over the last week, I've got together with uh, a few people online to record some parts, and I've also been down to the theatre again today to record with the uh, the lovely Janet Westwood-Wilson. And also to pick up a scene that just got lost in the way. So, yeah, it's been an interesting week. So if I if I can sort of combine this with shout outs. Obviously, the lovely Mr. Walcott is making an appearance. And that was very uh, was very good fun recording with him. I've also recorded with Leeson Fisher, who I don't know what our crossover with other areas of fandom is. But Leeson Fisher is a host with the Doctor Who podcast and his own podcast, which is the Radio Rassilon podcast. And I actually spotted today, he's got a piece in the Metro blog about the the Doctor Who episodes that have been recovered. And I also recorded with Mr. Ken White, who is a guy that I knew from years back when I used to be involved in the movies community. So he's a very keen Machinima fan. And for the last eight years, he has produced a Sunday night internet radio show, which has been going consistently since since the movies came out, and he's still doing it. So huge thanks to Ken for coming along and helping me out with the part great to chat to me again after all these years
0: well i think the question that's going to be on at every listener's lips is when can they possibly expect the first episode of escape velocity season two
2: i am hoping very soon
0: I have, <laughs> I, when, when,
2: when when i say very very soon i am hoping end of next week and that's on the basis that the thing that was putting me off really pressing through with episode one is because most of the gaps i had were in episode two i wanted to make sure i had the majority of that those gaps covered before pressing ahead with actually releasing the series. So now I've got, you know, 95% of episode two in the can. I'm happy that we are go for production and releasing now.
0: Fantastic stuff. Obviously, that's Mr. slightly Wolf? dependent
2: on Alan. <laughs> I, I haven't discussed timescales with Alan, but in my head, I'm in my head. I'm feeling like I can probably get something done for, you know, end of next week. But obviously, there are
3: other factors.
0: And we'll go straight over to one of those factors now. Mr. Stroud, what have you been up to this week, sir?
3: Mostly been trying to duck you folks press-ganging me into a war against Drew. <laughs> For the record, I, I'm pretty sure Drew has offered so many truces. The combined staff of Lave Radio have slapped away at different times in different <laughs> methods. So yeah, so I've kind of ducked out of it, which I'm going to continue to do. I believe there was some sensationalization of... The fact that John Stabler might be our love child. Very interesting. (laughs) Thank you to Darren Gray for that. I can categorically state that none of my DNA was involved in the creation of John. So as long as everybody is is clear on that. I can't say that for Drew though, so I mean obviously you'll you'll have to check, but uh, he does stop paying for breakfast when he gets near the Welsh border. (laughs) So yeah, other than that, what else have I done? Well, the Second draft of Lave Revolution is now seven chapters done and my editing process is actually is a bit quicker than than some people's. I will be ready, I'm hoping that by the end of tomorrow I'll have a sizeable chunk to send off to the editor at Fantastic Books. I have a 38 chapter story. I'm hoping to send it in sections of nine or ten chapters in each bit so and then uh, you know they'll come back with comments and then i'll make some changes as we go but yeah no i've got seven chapters that i'm happy with so that's good i've been working on the concordance writing anyone that's checked some of my kickstarter knows that uh, i've got a variety of tiny projects that are attached to the story project so you know i've got one or two bits and pieces there with uh, with a missing chapter and some code sections and other bits and pieces so i've started work on a a set of those i've itemized some of the pledge elements as well so that's that's all done i have started working with drew in a little bit of checking of things as well we're going backwards and forwards over a few things in relation to his story and my story and we'll you know uh, hopefully there's a little bit of that going on in the forums where we're sharing a few things it's particularly interesting because what we want to do obviously is join some very careful things together so that very attentive fans who read all the fiction can look at and go, ah that that links there. that works like that. So yeah we've been uh, we've been sort of discussing a couple of those things backwards and forwards. I interviewed Chris Booker, the guy who's organized the Tales of the Frontier Kickstarter, which is the short stories book that's due to be released and I'm sure people have already heard that, so all very entertaining. The students started back in earnest. Yeah, we've had all the, the usual chaos of the first couple of weeks, everybody getting used to their lessons and, uh, and where they're supposed to be and which rooms they're supposed to be in. So that's all been fun. And, yeah, I've I made a little bit of a start on organising some bits and pieces for the PhD, so that's all fun. So a little bit more work to do on that tomorrow. But, yeah,
0: I think that kind of covers pretty much everything. Great. Excellent. Great stuff. Grant, tell me what you've been up to.
1: Yeah, it's just not fair. It's just not fair to come to me last after th- those two can go on for a good 10-15 minutes about all the amazing things they've been up to in the last couple of weeks, and then you come to me. I've got up most days. Um...
0: <laughs> no. How
1: about you did
0: work on Barnet Star News, you also edited another version of uh, Retro Lay, which is yeah. due to be launched very soon, and what that episode was. And then also maybe the fact that you've finally done your tax returns.
1: No, no, I'm just totally strung out on caffeine and have no recollection of any of that. Uh, <laughs> well, I say, well, no. it from me that
0: that's what you did, and then go back and tell us all about it.
1: All right, okay, yeah, no retro That was a good one, actually. That was what did we do this week? We did. <laughs> uh, we did Wing Commander three. That's right. One of my favourite games from my youth. <laughs> Uh, Go
0: back and just take it from the top. So, Grant, what have you been up to this week?
1: It's good that you should ask. I was obviously recently involved with the RetroLave episode where we did one of my favourite games from my childhood, Wing Commander 3, um, and sat through hours and hours of um, cutscenes. And it was great fun.
0: You obviously can't get too much Mark Hamill, can you?
1: Well, you see, you go for the Mark Hamill and I'm more interested in the Biff from Back to the Future 'Cause he was by far one of the funniest characters in there. And the the way that the more you took him out in your missions, the more you really wanted him to die. <laughs>
0: And when can we expect that episode to go out?
1: The next couple of days, it's all finished. And it's Actually, it's a very good episode. From some of these episodes, you, you kind of find there's a lot of repetition. But the guys, the, the rest of the team, really had an awful lot of interesting um, discussion about Wing Commander 3. So it was quite impressive. Mm. From interesting discussion about games onto to interesting nothingness about anything. Yes, I've been working on the latest episode of BS News. Trying to raise the bar a little bit away from the gutter, but failing miserably and ending up just getting flushed away down the sewers. We like to go to those places that continue the rifts, <laughs> and certainly amongst the elite authors. And um, yes, we've managed to get away unscathed. I don't think Kate listens to the show, which is quite good.
0: Yeah, you just be careful when she does start listening to the show. I think the whole radioactives in Slough, Late Radio have got nothing on Barnard Star News when it comes to that particular topic of conversation.
1: I know, but how much bigger can the target on my back get? I mean, realistically.
0: (laughs) This is very true.
1: Great stuff. Okay. Well, from my perspective,
0: like Alan, I've also done an interview. We released a double hitter this week. We interviewed Dan Grubb, who is the chief executive officer of Fantastic Books Publishing, who's publishing three of the elite books, Mr. Alan Stroud's, uh, Drew Wagar's and John Harper's. And that was quite interesting. It gave us quite a, an insightful interview as to uh, what the the role of a publisher actually is. And uh, he gave us an interesting heads up on an audio Uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that grab that whilst you can okay so let's go crashing on to the first bit of elite development news That of the dev diary number six Uh, this is the development diary done by david braben the commentary on the recent damocles video what do you guys think of it? Actually, hold on, forget about what you guys think about it, let me tell you what I think about it to start off with. The first thing that uh, I thought about this video was the fact that when he's going through the various different uh, spot effects from the video, I was actually expecting there to be a lot more um, sort of post effects in that video than uh, than the ones he alluded to. I mean, he basically just said that the lens flares weren't done, the, the zooming effect was done afterwards, and the heat flares and the, the laser beams, he was saying that you, know, you wouldn't see those in, in normal space, so they were added in as well. I actually was quite surprised. So little was done to that video, I thought we would be expecting quite a big debrief about which bits were sort of layered on after the actual thing had been done by the in-game engine. Were you guys surprised? From the original
3: video, we got the idea of the ability to be around your cockpit rather than just simply looking out through the main view window, which was was all very nice.
0: And certainly some of the things that he said, you know, were missing from uh, from that video that are going to be there in the final game. Things like... um, Yeah, the heat vents opening up. We didn't see those on the side winders, and also the bit that you dropped in there as well, which I think will be a great effect. And that's the one of uh, of trails, engine trails behind the ships, which uh, we didn't see in the video, but uh, are going to be apparent in the final game, which I think will actually be quite a nice effect.
1: One of the things I thought, well, one of the things that I was slightly disappointed with was my idea of the deconstructed video that we were led to believe it would be would have had uh, the footage of the same animation but minus the layers to sort of show us what Mm. it was looking like raw that would have been quite interesting to see
0: i mean this is literally more of a sort of an overview commentary is the way that i took it he did say that there's going to be a a follow-up an art diary and I'd expect that sort of breakdown would appear in the art diary as opposed to uh, David's overview commentary.
3: I think to be fair though, we were kind of sold it, or, or at least it was mentioned that it was going to be a deconstruction. And and to me, a deconstruction also has a visual element to it. So, you know, you'd see something in split screen and you'd look at comparative footage. Perhaps I'm a little bit spoiled by some of Avatar's deconstructions, which I use quite a lot with the students. But uh, the way in which this was, was obviously was a, a sort of a commentary and then a highlight back over the top. And that was fine. I mean, the content, you know, the content was was informative and and useful but i I just don't think it was as detailed as it might have been and it's always nice with these things to have a visual reference now what david did do is he went through first and then he went back and paused on a couple of places i'd actually like them to pause more and highlight maybe circle something how you know sort of have a look at what's there and even also to to look at perhaps previous passes of stuff as well, so that we could see development. I think that was kind of a thing that we wanted to see. You know, it's pretty. It's pretty and we'd like to see how they made it. I don't think necessarily we've got enough of that.
0: Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And maybe, you know, something that uh, Frontier can look at, because obviously they've created this video and one of the reasons that they've created it is it gives them a point of reference. So if they're changing the particle effects, if they're changing any of the artwork, then they've got something that they can literally put side by side, like you're saying, Alan. And I think it'd be nice coming towards the, you know, the alpha and the beta release if they could actually maybe present, you know, how the game is running now uh such as that video and then you know alongside that you know what the game is going to look like in three months time
3: i think we want to stress a little bit in that we want to see what they've made it isn't a matter of being more critical of the content it's actually about you know we want to unpeel the layers and see the content Mm. as it were and i think we are a little bit spoiled certainly if you've watched lots of dvd extras or lots of extras for movies and everything else You're a little bit spoiled in terms of the way in which the bonnet is effectively is propped up and you look under the hood and and see everything as it's been sort of working and going on. I kind of didn't feel that from this. And I I think that
0: you could be more exploratory. No, definitely. And let's see what happens with the art diary that's coming out next and see whether or not they do a bit more and explore a bit more with that diary.
2: I think the biggest thing from the commentary on the video that was revealed as being there for the purposes of the trailer and not in the game that I was most disappointed by was when uh, David Rabin said that the mission offer via voice comms isn't going to be a feature of the game. And I think that's a pity. I think that's one of the things that I found quite evocative about the video was that you might get a mission come up as like a radio transmission. And obviously I get that you can't respond with voice because that would be weird, but it's a shame. I understand why they're doing it because, I mean, if they are sticking to a March 2014 release date, There's very little time between now and then, once you finalize the design, to get all those kind of vocals recorded that you'd need. And with the huge array of kind of randomly generated NPCs, it would be very difficult to have enough voices. But I do think it's a shame. I think it's something that worked really well in the video. And when you think about how missions are actually going to pop up in the game, and it may be just being like a little prompt or a menu thing, somehow it's not quite as cool.
0: Yeah, I'm completely behind what you say there. One of the things that we've come across quite a bit in the in the recent episodes of Retrolave is that quite a few of the games have started to use comm channels. So you get a little picture of the person that you're talking to and a little bit of scripted dialogue. And that just gives it such a deeper element of immersion within the game than uh, just sort of standard text alone. So I completely see what you're saying there. Uh, but you're right. When it comes to NPC dialogue, it's something that's going to take them a long time to build up in terms to have a sufficient quantity to make it uh, seem realistic as opposed to uh, something that's going to actually sort of bring you out of the game. Going on a little bit further into the sound in space, there's something that Ashley was saying in the uh, the newsletter, and that's the you know the effect of sound in space. Now we know that uh, yeah, there's no sound that can travel through a vacuum, uh, but they're getting around that by saying that the the computer in your ship will actually uh, take the situational data and create some audio feedback. To help you um, augment your your tactical awareness inside the cockpit, so you will hear laser beams, you will hear ships going past, but it's all going to be, in theory, generated by your ship as opposed to be the sound that's coming out from outside.
1: Grant, I think that that's good in a number of ways because it allows to create the very immersive atmospheric effect for pilots. And I imagine there'll be a degree of customization in your options where you can kind of set it to being a default. However, one of the things that really is in my head when it comes to this is malfunctions in that system would be fantastic, wouldn't it? A ship goes past and you get this loud raspberry in your ear and you fire a missile and it sounds like a boomerang sound effect. I think you know, there's a good comedy potential in the ship going faulty but equally i think it's a slightly dangerous precedent to be able to just dismiss something based in the realism on yeah the ship's computer can kind of sort that
3: yeah i thought that was a pretty bad decision to be honest the idea i had was more along the lines of hearing things through the hull so actually you know you'd have your sound would obviously would travel based on the fact that you know if something happened outside the hull i'd assume that people inside inside the atmosphere uh, within the hull would hear it so I thought that was their opportunity in terms of laser fire then what about if you heard your guns doing the things that they're doing so you know have that sort of muffled noise from that that sense and also impact you'd have muffled noise from you know the way in which the impacts would work the whole cinematic outdoor realism whether in space anyone can hear you scream or not uh, saying a computer's simulating these things i I, I don't think that somebody in the 34th century would necessarily feel that they needed that
2: because the other thing is i mean if it's your if it's your ship that produces the sound does that mean that if you're in like the lounge of a luxury liner you don't hear it with the the fact that the cockpit relays audio is it not better to just say you're making a creative decision to have sound in space for the sake of entertainment than to try and say to your audience, we've come up with a reason why
3: you can hear stuff.
1: But they can sell sound packs.
3: Elite Dangerous, the Tom and Jerry pack. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, uh, so what have we decided on then? Have we decided that the uh, the idea of uh, your ship's computer synthesizing the the sounds from outside is uh, is a bad idea now, or. Are we thinking that you know maybe it's something that we just have to to suck it and see?
2: I think it's just unnecessary. I think if you were to say to people, "We've taken a creative decision here that there will be sound in space for the purposes of clarity and entertainment," then I think people accept that. I think to have to come up with an in-game reason why you can hear stuff, I just I think it's I just think it's feature justification a bit too far. When they release the thing to walk around space stations. You know, if you look out a window and there's a battle, do you hear it then? Is the sound reproduced in the corridors? I think it's just easier sometimes to say to people, suspension of disbelief. Yes, we know that realistically there's no sound in space. But, you know, this is it's about fun and it's about representing what's going on, not necessarily putting you in that situation
3: done with Chris on this one. I think it's yeah, it is is feature justification unfortunately. I get why. I mean, you know the, the thing is we're in an unprecedented situation of game development here where we have an audience and a community built around the development of a computer game that are examining every element in quite a lot of detail. And of course, by examining every element in quite a lot of detail, it can be the case that people kind of come back at that and go, okay, well, here's our rationalisation for this, here's our rationalisation for that. And actually, sometimes you don't need to do that. I think um, Mike Evans actually said it the other day, as something that was there where he was saying, essentially, you can go through and try and rationalise any form of future technology in, in any particular way if you want to, but it's a little bit pointless sometimes because at the end of the day, if we could rationalise that society, we'd be living in it, wouldn't we? It's that difference between design and application, isn't it? And of course, unfortunately... The people who are part of the community of development are also part of the community of the audience, the gaming audience, the people who will appreciate the the eventual result. And I think we're all trying to get used to that difference and separation between the two roles. Coming soon from the Radio Theatre Workshop and
2: LaveRadio.com, Escape Velocity, Series 2.
0: Radio Network News, bringing you the latest from the core to the frontier.
4: Concerns tonight as eyewitnesses share reports of alien sightings on the rim. Residents of local systems say that orb-like craft have been passing near Tannhauser. Authorities say that Thargoid sightings are unsubstantiated and no cause for alarm. News from further afield now as the Colmack Reeve Corporation play down fears of an epidemic of disappearances in frontier systems.
0: This is big country out here. There are always people going missing. What we've got is a group of disgruntled miners trying to stir trouble, pay it no heed.
4: Experts say there is no indication of a statistical increase in net disappearances. Sports now, as floating sub-half Triton Angel Monroe brings victory for the Reidquat Stranglers with a fourth successful G-ball point in as many games. This success brings the Reidquat Stranglers tied for the top of the league. And finally, a cybernetic man so tired of poor disability access in the sprawl, he traded in his legs for a rotor drive. More on that story tonight.
0: Okay, we're moving on from the guns and the gunfire outside your spaceship to the guns that you're going to mount on your spaceship. We'll go straight into the newsletter and uh, And pick out some of the interesting points made by Ashley Barley. The first one has to be a, a new one for all of us here at lay radio it 's gun porn we've had ship porn we 've had planet porn, and now we 've got the wonderful gun porn in the newsletter. We saw the railgun one rather we saw the first uh, railgun and the first beam laser. What do you guys think of these? Are these keeping within the aesthetic and the design that you'd expect them to?
1: Yep, I think they're actually very much in the same vein as Eve, and that's a little bit disappointing for me. I think.
0: Oh really? So, you, you, what you think the aesthetic of them is is very similar to you know, the hard points and the you know, the actual turrets that you see within Eve Online.
1: Yeah, I think the only thing that they've got an advantage on is that the graphically, they look pretty impressive. So I quite like the way they look and. If they are animated in the way that they come out of the capital ships in a similar method to that, then that's going to be one up on EVE. But I just find the whole hard point fitting, but it's just a bit done. It's nothing new there, I don't think. No, although it was quite interesting
0: when they had the. You know, they've obviously suggested that they're going to have three particular hard points per ship. So you can have a static hard point. You actually have to move your entire ship in order to to target that particular gun. Then you have a a second hard point, which is a tracking. Uh, hard point that will have a gimbal which will be able to move around slightly to help you with your aiming and then finally you've got your, your massive hard point which is the turret hard point that will automatically track and you know fire on your target for you
1: you're saying See a massive hard point
0: i am <laughs> saying a massive hard point yes
1: the, t- the turret hard point actually is something that is quite intriguing in that It would be wonderful if it had a wee manual control and a little video or sort of video screen on your your HUD where you can see from the gun itself and therefore control it independently. That would be quite a nice feature.
0: That's certainly what we had in Frontier. If you uh, if you put the turret view with the Panther Clipper, you were able to control that turret uh, independently of the rest of the ship, weren't you?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if Grant's not talking about a um, like a picture-in-picture picture thing. A bit like uh, SWAT 4 game on the uh, PC had a thing where you could you were obviously controlling a squad of cops. And you could have a little pop-up camera window on your main display where you could watch the video feed from one of your other units.
3: Oh. And also in carrier command, you had the wire-guided missiles that were camera-operated and joystick-operated. So you basically you were running an amphibious tank and you fired a wire-guided missile and this picture-in-picture came up and suddenly your joystick was controlling the missile which is fantastic. I mean, something along those lines, I suppose, if you activated a particularly special gun, that would be quite cool.
1: That, that kind of control of a, a turret would be good. You're saying it's automated, Like think the newsletter is saying it's automated as well. I just think it'd be nice to be able to have that. But with all modern day controllers, you tend to have those extra hat controllers that don't tend to get used in games, and that would just be awesome to control your turret using your secondary hat control and see the camera feed in your heads-up display and, and you know be able to do those kind of special tactical manoeuvres that would otherwise be slightly more tricky.
0: I can't help but think that I'm no longer young enough to actually be able to cope with what you are just suggesting there. I think I'm either going to be staring out at the cockpit, focusing on what's going on ahead of me, or focusing on what the turret's doing. I don't think I can actually handle doing two things at once.
1: But if you think about it in, in a way like, oh, crikey, Minority Report, would they get the screens where you can... You know, I like, I'd like to see the head-up display like that, where you can select an active screen and then maximise it with a kind of sweeping motion and it will zoom up and then you can look at that screen and then you can minimise it. That will be a pretty um, beautiful. And for that, that kind of thing, that would suit you because then you could maximise the turret screen and just concentrate on that and ignore anything in front of the ship that you're hurtling towards. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was going to say, Fozzer, if you're worried about doing two things at once, just be grateful you're not playing Mech Warrior, and you have to steer the top of the body and the legs
0: separately. No, I, they lost me when every single button on the keyboard actually had something that you had to know about. So, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that came out of this isn't particularly a um, a weapon per se. It's actually the interesting one, which I think is quite unique to Elite Dangerous, and that's the the heat sink launcher. What did you guys think about this? I mean, basically the premise is that uh, obviously as you fly your ship, it will build up heat, and uh, you know the more heat you have in the ship, the more visible you are to to sensors. So if anybody's trying to, you know, pirate your ship or target you, you're going to be a much bigger target because you're a much hotter target. And the idea is that uh, with these heat sink launches, you can actually bundle all of that excess heat together. And then actually fire it as a pellet uh, away from your ship. You know, that will A, cool down your ship, and B, also act as a, um, almost like a flare or a decoy for anybody that's actually chasing after you. Now, I was racking my brains. I couldn't think of this in any other sort of space sim game that I've played.
2: No, it's, it's an interesting proposal. The thing that it sort of occurs to me is that if, if the reason you have to manually dump the heat is because the heat doesn't escape from your ship into the vacuum, how can anybody see you via your heat trace anyway? But that's, that's, that's by the by. I'm sure, I'm sure there is a certain amount of heat bleed which uh, will show up on scanners. But no, it's a really interesting, a really interesting concept that you would actually... It, it would be a bit like driving along in your car and then periodically just dumping the contents of the, um, the radiator and refilling it with cold water. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? To kind of permanently yeah. take the heat away. Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, it's a really interesting thing. And, it, and because of the proposal about the scanners and how scanners resolve detail, it'd be interesting to know how effective it is to just dump a kind of mass blob of heat in terms of someone tracking you. Um, It'll be interesting to see in practice how much that fools an opponent. Because if they're close enough to you to have resolved the model of your ship, their scanners presumably aren't going to be fooled by a, a floating blob of of heat or liquid or whatever it is that's ejected. I think it's one of the things you we'll might have to see in practice to really appreciate how it's going to work.
0: I think you're right there. Um, but as I say, it's quite nice. Obviously, yeah, we've all played the space sims whilst we've been waiting for, uh, for Elite 4 to finally arrive. And it's quite nice when you see something coming out of the Elite 4 development that you haven't seen in another space sim.
1: The heat pellet is going to be concentrated heat and therefore would create a much bigger heat signature than the ship would. So I think that's the reason why it would be an effective deterrent or chaff or flare.
3: I think it's a cracking idea. It does create a really different... We're all kind of thinking about it and thinking about gameplay advantages or disadvantages that this kind of thing will give. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's really clever. And also, by connecting the stealth profile to that and connecting the scanning profile to that, it it sort of creates two sides of an equation because they've been pretty clear that some of the mods that were done on the very late versions of Elite with the cloaking device and the ECM jammer and what have you, they did kind of unbalance the game a little bit uh, when those things were brought in. Uh, Retro Rockets was one that Chris Booker mentioned in uh, the interview with me. It was one of the the sort of late innovations of the Atari. And you don't want those kind of game unbalancing elements, but you do want a sort of element of stealth and sneakiness because that's, you know, modern spaceship sim gameplay. The idea that you keep your heat down as much as possible to stay hidden is the connection between the two, isn't it? And so not by ejecting heat, but by finding yourself somewhere to hide and then turning off every possible system to keep your heat trace as low as you can so that you're as stealthy as possible from somebody coming into the system is the way in which you hide. So connecting it with a heat signature, I think is a fabulous idea.
1: So like holding it in until it hurts. (laughs)
0: Right, I'm going to just draw a discreet veil over that one and move on to, uh, we've gone from gun porn to planet porn, so we've got a few more pictures of planets within the uh, newsletter Uh, and Ashley alludes to the fact that they've got a new feature within the Private Backer Forum, so if anybody's out there who um, did pay for the Private Backer Forum but uh, hasn't been visiting because there wasn't a lot to sort of draw you in, well there's a new feature called Peak of the Week. Which I can't help but sounds a little bit on the rude side. But Peak of the Week basically is where they will post a uh, unique picture of the game uh, and development within the, the private backers forum. And the one they posted here, along with David's comments, is of a new planet. Which says, here is the view of a profoundly cold volcanic world with the odd active volcano surrounded by yellow sulfurous deposits at the balmy temperature of minus 40 degrees C. Maybe a rare planet. So if you want to go and see some unique pictures of the game in development, then head back over to the Backers Forum and uh, check them out. Previously on the Second Technician Incidents. I repeat. Second Technician
4: Forester to the Arcade Concourse. The Lifting Machine has broken.
2: I repeat. Second Technician Forester to the Arcade Concourse. The Lifting Machine has broken. I repeat.
4: Second Technician... (laughs)
1: Then I'm gonna murder every single person I see. The what now? And now the exciting
3: conclusion.
0: going to do it for dev diary number six and the newsletter we'll go straight into the ddf now ddf this week's only got one topic it's a biggie it's broken down into two parts and that is the new frame shift drive now this goes back to the in-system travel which caused so much kerfuffle amongst (laughs) the ddf who's actually able to tell us why there was issues and what the problems were because i didn't spend that much time in the in-system travel i didn't see what the objections were about it
1: Yeah, I think the original proposal was about points of interest and, well, I think the community's perception of what they were saying was you would jump in and you'd have these nav points that you could select from that would be your points of interest. And obviously, I think looking at how things have developed, these points of interest would have been discovered by using... Scanning functions and obviously the area when you get to the point of interest would be large enough to give you movement and for combat and meeting other ships and things. But I think the overall feel was that was a very limited universe and therefore you were restricted because they were more concerned about what was in the points between the points of interest and the ability to be able to go and have a look there. And that was out with everyone's experience from elite being able to point your ship and fly in that direction. And if you find something, you find something. And if you don't, you don't certainly myself. I felt that if you couldn't do that freedom flight, then it's not really elite.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. the problem you've got is that you have the, obviously the ability to hyperspace into a system. If you give people the ability to hyperspace to exactly where they want to go, then you ruin the game for kind of the pirates and things. Because if you can just fly into a system and hyperspace right next to a safe zone you know, by a space station, then there isn't any of that deep system flying that's what gets you into trouble. You've got the flip side of it, which is that in Frontier you had a mechanism for speeding up time. So it didn't matter. If you flew into the edge of a solar system and it took you six days to fly from the edge of the solar system to the nearest inhabited planet, that didn't matter because you just hit fast forward and you skipped over those six days. The problem in a multiplayer environment is you have to do everything in real time. So I think the crux of the in-system travel problem was that flying around a solar system manually takes a really, really, really long time. I think if you look at our own solar system, the time it takes light to travel from Earth to, say, Jupiter, is anything between 20 and 40 minutes, depending on the relative positions of the planets. So if you're looking at that, if you're looking at even giving a craft a light speed engine, you're still talking about 20 to 40 minutes of real time flying just to get from Earth to Jupiter, which I think is seen as a bit of a kind of gameplay bottleneck and a bit of a no-no. So I think that's really the problem with the in-system travel. They wanted a way for people to be able to fly around the system faster, but without breaking the game for people that wanted to kind of sit and wait in ambush, waiting for ships to fly past.
0: Wasn't there also an element of, when it came to trade goods, that the traders were complaining that the fact that you were shifting something from somewhere to somewhere else, because it was all going sort of almost instantaneously, it kind of made the feeling of trade sort of less worthwhile or less worthy? Was that an issue as well?
1: I think it did, yep. So I think it affected that, and also explorers wanted to be able to point their ships and just head off at whatever pace they could.
0: Okay, well, suffice to say that it certainly caused disgruntlement within the DDF and within the wider elite community as a whole. So they went away and they've come back with a new proposal now. I think this is actually quite a nice window for people to actually see what sort of impact the DDF and the elite community as a whole is actually having on the development of this game. So this is the reply that came back from Sandro Simarco. Hello you lovely backers. Our initial proposal for in-system fast travel raised almost universal concerns from the DDF. As developers, we of course make the cause and live with the consequences. But it's fair to say that even in such a small, fanatical, in a good way, demographic, the response was clear enough to make us step back and take another look at what we were trying to achieve. Well, it turns out that that look became a long, unyielding gaze into the abyss of design. Brains were racked until you could use them for pizza bases, stones were turned until the insects had nowhere to sleep, and teeth were gnashed until we were forced to drink our dinner. The often conflicting issues of multiplayer and scale made this an extremely thorny issue requiring compromise between many disciplines. But we pushed through to the other side, and I think we found something pretty darn good along the way. So, what he's talking about is the new frameshift drive. Now, the idea of the frameshift drive is quite a complicated one, but we'll break it down as best we can. The idea is that your engine is split into three particular parts. So, you'll have your basic engine. Your basic engines will consist of one or more powered internal module that consume fuel and generate thrust. The greater the thrust produced, the higher the fuel consumption, a series of external thrusters that direct the thrust to provide the ship a certain movement. So that basic engine will allow you to travel at speeds of several hundred meters per second. And then you have the frameshift drive. Now the frameshift drive is a powered internal module, basically a cut down version of the actual hyperdrive of the ship. It consumes fuel to allow a ship to travel at significant fraction of the speed of light. And then finally you have the hyperdrive. Now the hyperdrive will allow you to do micro jumps within the system from one orbital body to another and also allow you to jump from system to another system. So guys, that in a nutshell is the engine broken down into three parts. Would you say that made sense to everybody?
2: I think there was a lovely demonstration later in the thread with some pictures about how jumping around systems works. And the analogy that came to my mind is basically when you're travelling from one system to another you're basically playing golf on a par-3 course. Essentially what you're saying is that your hyperspace drive will get you from one solar system to another. It's an extremely powerful initial drive that gets you roughly near where you're going. Okay. Then when you get into the system, you could be anywhere in the system, so you kind of then have to do a micro-jump to get you close to the planet or satellite that you want to be near, and then once you're roughly near it, you then have to engage either the supercruise or conventional drives to get there. Effectively you're doing two jumps to get onto the green and you then have to kind of putt yourself to your actual destination.
0: Yeah, that is a good analogy. When you're talking about modes of travel you have conventional travel which is done with the, the basic engines and whilst you're going through conventional travel you can dock, you can engage in combat, you can do trading, mining and some methods of exploration. When you engage the frameshift drive, you go into what's called a supercruise mode of travel. And within supercruise, you have freeform travel between in-system bodies, a freeform high-speed orbit around in-system bodies to allow you to slingshot, and freeform travel to in-system locations that you have on your database. And you can also do high-speed pursuit and artificial mass-locking of targeting ships, and some other methods of exploration. And finally, the hyperdrive travel is literally system-to-system jump or in-system jumps to an in-system body with a big gravity well. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I think
2: the supercruise is really what's going to be the friend of the explorers and the mappers. I mean, that's going to be where you kind of see something visually in the distance. And you think, I want to fly to that and find out what it is.
1: Yeah, Well, you've also got the combat ramifications for the different drive modes. You can't fight in hyperspace, and it looks like hyperspace drives are going to be the sort of surefire way of getting away from somebody, um, although I believe you can be pursued, so they can follow you to whatever your destination is. And then in Super Cruise, there's no room for combat either, obviously because any sort of projectiles or things working at that speed would be highly ineffective or extremely inaccurate so the easiest thing is to make these the combat systems unavailable so the only thing you can really do is you can pursue and then using whichever modules are available that can disrupt the super crews. then you can disrupt the, another player's super cruise and drop them into normal space and then unload all your weaponry at them at your normal drive speed so it's a wonderful sort of three-tier system there that It's just, ah, it just has so much gameplay in it. Because you try and get away in Super Cruise, and then round the corner, some sod's sitting there with a net to catch you, and you end up getting dumped back out into more trouble. The thing that I'd really relish is a group of pirates, one guy sitting there with his Cruise Disruptor weapon activated, and you come along with your 600 pals. Well, 32, let's say, for instance's sake. They drop you out thinking they're going to have a nice easy target and you've got an awful lot of friends and very, very big ships indeed. And the looks on their faces would be priceless.
0: <laughs> They've certainly mentioned as well, I mean, talking about the, the super cruise travel, it is possible if you're travelling with friends, you can slave your drive to each other and make sure that you all enter supercruise speed at the same time, which means that you will come out at the same place. But yes, you're right. If you are a pirate who wants to put one of his interdiction modules up and put a net up to catch people that are super cruising around the system, uh, it hasn't been said specifically, but uh, yes, I'm sure you probably don't know exactly what it is that you're pulling out of supercruise. So yes, you could get a nasty surprise waiting for you.
2: Yeah, it would be hilarious if you got some sort of new player in his Sidewinder and he's just bought himself the thing for uh, dropping someone out of Super Cruise and the first ship he does it on is an Imperial Destroyer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would assume there would be some element of balance where uh, small (laughs) ships can't pull imperial cruisers out of supercruise, or indeed whether or not imperial cruisers will actually use supercruise because there are risks to entering to supercruise speed. Basically, it just compresses the time space, so points become much much closer. What it doesn't do is it doesn't affect the gravity of things in systems. So as you're flying around at this super speed, there will be a risk of you having a collision with things that have a very high gravity well, so things like planets. And I think it's quite nice when they're talking about the interface. Once you go into that super cruising speed, the interface on your cockpit will actually change and you'll have various sort of artificial reality. Things will be highlighted to you. So you will see planets in the distance uh, or anything that has a big gravity well come up in the distance and you will have to actually navigate around them. What they say is that if you get too close to one of these big gravity wells, you're traveling at such a speed that you get dumped out of Super Cruise because you're obviously mass-locked like the original Elite. Mm. And being dumped out at that sort of speed can have all sorts of ramifications to your ship. So it could either damage your ship or in worst cases actually destroy your ship. And the other nice things about the effects are you you will actually see other ships that are at supercruise speed, they will also appear on your HUD as a piece of sort of artificial reality, a bit of yeah, augmented reality rather. So they'll be highlighted, and there'll be sort of bright sparks flying around amongst you. So the other risk of being at that particular speed, obviously, that mode of travel consumes fuel, and running out of fuel will cause the FSD to drop back down into conventional space, potentially leaving the vessel stranded. And if you're stranded, obviously, you can either use your escape pod or you can begin transmitting a distress signal. Always a risky thing to do. As we've already said, some consumable devices can be deployed by vessels and structures that create a net capable of dragging supercruise vessels down to conventional drive speed if they get too close.
1: I'm just confused, actually. If you run out of fuel and you send a distress signal, who's going to get out the cockpit with the wee tank to fill up the other ship? John.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a stabler role. John
1: has
2: specified previously that he would, he would love to be in a sort of RAC role, although other <laughs> breakdown
3: companies are available. I can see him with little cloth as well to do your windshield at the same time. It'd
2: <laughs> yeah. be brilliant if you get mass locked by somebody who just wants to clean your windshield for you.
0: <laughs> okay, and the final point of this DDF is the uh, just the clarification around the hyperdrive. So obviously, the hyperdrive is still part of the frame shift drive, or rather, the frame shift drive is actually part and parcel of the the hyperdrive. So in order to actually hyperspace to a different system, you will automatically have to be going at uh, supercruise speed before the main hyperdrive will actually jump up the hyperdrive in itself will allow you to do micro jumps to other stellar bodies within the system
2: yeah, I think the most significant change here for players that are used to the way certainly Frontier played is that in Frontier, when you hyperspace into a system, you, you hyperspace in on the fringe and then you have to fly into the core. Whereas what this is hinting, it says when using hyperspace jump to a system, the ship arrives nearby the largest mass present, normally it's star. Um, so essentially when you hyperspace into a system, certainly a solar system with one sun, you will effectively hyperspace to the middle of that system and then fly outwards. And it's just an interesting shift away from the way Frontier worked. What it makes a lot more sense to is if you've got a fuel scoop and you're going to be scooping fuel from a star. It always struck me as odd in Frontier that if you're out of fuel, when you hyperspace into a system, the thing you are furthest from is the thing you can refuel from. So I think in this, if you hyperspace into a solar system and you run out of fuel, at least the sun is right there and you can just get
1: on with it. There was just one thing that was in the proposal that I don't know if it ever got answered, but I was asking was the fact that you cannot enter hyperspace unless you're in cruise speed. That was quite an interesting point. That's quite a depart from the normal of just pressing the key and it processes up. Now, I was asking whether or not it was an automated process so that if you were, say, for example, stationary in a system and you were just wanting to plot your hyperspace jump and then you hit your key, whether it would then, doing a sort of charge process, take you into cruise speed and an automated process and then into hyperspace, which would be fine. But. If was a manual system, you could see some poor sod sitting there pressing the key going, why am I not jumping? Why am I not jumping?
2: Or <laughs> the other way around, if you can't open the map to plot your course before you enter Super Cruise, then the analogy is a little bit like you're not allowed to get out your A to Z to chart your uh, route until you're already on the motorway doing 70. So you have to start your ship bombing along at its fastest possible speed, and then you open up a map and figure out where you're going. Meanwhile, you're heading to God knows what.
0: No, I think it'll be part of an automated system, so it'll be probably more about the visual aspect of it. So you'll hit the hyperspace thing, your ship will go into what we'll recognise as supercruise, and then you know, after a couple of seconds it will do its main jump to hyperdrive.
2: But it does mean that that's how you can be interdicted from going to hyperspace.
0: Yes, which I think works and quite well. It'll be stunning. I am hoping all the talk about the visualizations of these particular drives and and the jumps all sound spectacular. For example, other ships traveling at supercruise are rendered as distorted flaring lights, visible way beyond normal visible range. And other astronomical effects like magnetic fields become accentuated too, rendering them visible in many cases. Beautiful. Okay, so we'll leave the frameshift drive there, but suffice to say that everybody here is very, very excited about it. We think they have nailed this proposal and I think there's a lot of game to be had from the various different methods of travel. There is quite a lot of detail within the proposal, so watch for it coming out of the DDF and going down into the private backers and then finally into the open forums and, and check it out and have a look at the various details of the proposal. It's definitely worth a read. Okay, and that's going to do it for the DDF this week and we'll go straight into the community corner.
1: Station Engineer Miles Blackwood,
3: Official Recording 24. Galactic Standard 2309. Year 3299. Six months into my tour now. Things have been
0: well, not the easiest. Thing. Turns out the whole maintenance team has been underfunded for three and a half
3: decades. At least Warden got the trains to run on time, eh? Owing to staff shortage, management won't let me get rid of the dead weight either. One guy on the team runs a radio station on the side. Can you believe that? Even roped in the management. I guess Massage,
1: the ego's at the top and you get a cushy life around here. I don't
3: know what second technician Forrester actually does for living, or who signed him off. We send him out to fix anything more complicated than a light switch and fucks it up with a wrench. I reckon he does it on purpose. I reckon all the crap breaking around here is him. I'm going to end his career on this station. the last thing I do.
0: Okay, and before we go to Community Corner, we've actually got some latest breaking news. Chris? Yeah, we've just had an announcement on the forums.
2: Frontier today announced that the immersive galaxy-wide sandbox space experience of Elite Dangerous will be available on virtual reality headset Oculus Rift in 2014. Oculus Rift is a new virtual reality headset that provides the wearer with a rich 3D view that enables them to look around a virtual world as if they are in that world. Designed for immersive gaming, Oculus Rift lends itself perfectly to providing players of Elite Dangerous with an even more intense experience. In addition, Frontier is happy to announce that the Oculus Rift version of Elite Dangerous will be available to all crowdfunding backers of the game via Kickstarter and its own site that have an Oculus Rift headset for no extra cost. David Braben, CEO of Frontier, commented, We've been playing around with the Oculus Rift dev kits and are excited about the potential. Just glancing around your cockpit or being totally immersed in a space battle. Many of our backers have made it clear that they would like Oculus Rift support, and so do we. We're very pleased with the results so far. In the longer term, this will broaden the audience for Elite Dangerous. So there you go. Oculus Rift is one of these things that, since the Kickstarter finished, there have been people on the forum saying... Is it going to support Oculus Rift? Is it going to support Oculus Rift? So in some respects, it's nice that they've, they've removed all doubt.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And in fact, on the uh, the latest episode of the Conclave that will be released just after this show goes out, one of the topics that we had was, you know, what is the future for Elite Dangerous? And one of the things we talked about there was how... Gaming hardware was going to change the way that we played games. And John, who's on that show, has actually got one of the latest development kits of Oculus Rift. And he would actually talk us through his thoughts and feelings on actually getting to play with one of those. But it's a tricky thing, isn't it? Because at the moment, the Oculus Rift, everybody knows about it. It's got a a lot of of buzz around the potential of the hardware. But at the moment, that's all it is. It's potential. We haven't had a firm confirmation as to what the retail price of one of these headsets is going to be. And we know that the developer headsets are of a lower resolution to what the final product is going to be but I don't know about you guys, but this announcement just makes me think, okay, so now I desperately need to save up and get an Oculus Rift when it comes out.
1: Nah. (laughs) (laughs) You've got something Uh, to say, Grant? Yeah, we see it's one of these things that I think during one of the recordings of RetroLave, we had a bit of a discussion about it, and yeah, the Oculus is okay for games where you don't have keys. And if you have keys involved you can't see your keyboard so straight away you've got this issue where if you say for example it is an xbox controller and you happen to drop it while you're mid-play you've got to try and work out where the hell it is and feel around you're already going to be looking like a right (laughs) so hold
0: on you're not buying it for those few comedy moments where you lose all motor skills and drop your xbox controller
1: but but not just that you know you may get up and start heading towards the bathroom and instinctively think where the hell where where, where the hell am I? But <laughs> well, that's fine.
0: Know. Once we've got walking around in ships, you'll know that you'll need to turn around, get out of your flight seat, go go through your back door, and it's just going to be down the corridor on the right hand side. And you know, woe betide you if you end up having a wee in the sink, you know, in the kitchen. So uh,
2: you'll need a game controller equivalent of mitten strings.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. just to keep your
2: controller near your hand.
1: It sounds fantastic, and the only things that concern me is I have a particular issue with the likes of Doom type games and first person shooters. That when you're walking, you get that walking motion. Yeah. And after about forty minutes of play in a game like that, I actually end up feeling quite nauseous and have to stop. And it's that's me for the night. I can't even go back to and. It goes for me, and I, I'm concerned that as much as I love the Oculus and all that it looks like and and everything it represents, and I would just love to be part of it, I'm really concerned that it won't be for me, and it's such a price; it's not worth the risk. So I'll be hunting down places that let you try it before yeah. you have to buy it. Yeah, definitely.
0: yeah no, that's a that's a great show actually, because certainly when it comes to things like 3D, and Chris and I have discussed this at length. You know, even things like the Nintendo 3DS, I get a headache very, very quickly just by having that 3D effect on the screen. Likewise, 3D at the cinema, yeah, it doesn't particularly give me a headache, but I don't find it an enjoyable experience. You know, I do find mm. the visions a bit fuzzy. So I, much as I love the idea of looking around my cockpit with my head and you know, everything moving and being in a virtual reality environment, I love the idea of that immersion. I do hope the technology is at a level where it's not going to make me want to throw up
2: What you might find with Elite Dangerous, I'm not talking about other games in Oculus Rift, but certainly with Elite Dangerous, it'll be interesting to see if people that I know who suffer from motion sickness in games still have this problem with Elite Dangerous. Because actually, I have a friend who can't play first-person shooters. Something about it, and she's looked into it because she's a navi gamer and it frustrates her that there are so many games she can't play, but essentially she gets motion sick with first-person shooters but not third-person shooters. And there's something about having the character represented on screen to give perspective to the movement that's going on actually stops her from getting sick. And what will be interesting is whether the presence of the cockpit in Elite Dangerous will be enough to stop that motion sickness from taking place, because it gives you a frame of reference. Um, yeah, at the same well, time,
0: though, if you think about what they've told us already about the cockpit, you know, one of the big aspects that we've seen so far of the cockpit is the sense of motion it gives you, so you know, the various vibrations and stuff. Do you think that's going to be a blessing or a curse for something like the Oculus Rift? Could
2: be problematic, because what she's identified as being the cause of the motion sickness, and this is a thing that's true if you suffer from any kind of motion sickness, it's the discontinuity between what your eyes are seeing as movement and what your inner ear knows to be your actual orientation. So if you're seeing movement around you and your inner ear isn't feeling it, or vice versa, I mean, this is why you get sick on boats and things. If you're inside a room that appears to be not moving, but your inner ear is going crazy saying, hang on, we're bobbing up and down and going left and right, that's what makes you sick. And if we want to get technical, it's because your body believes that it's ingested poison so your body makes you sick to try and clear poisons out of your system but that's that's, that's getting into motion sickness in quite a lot of detail but
0: they've got this this image of commanders all over the galaxy just throwing up onto their keyboard <laughs> totally i mean this is the thing though with
2: something like oculus rift on the one hand it tracks the movement of your head Exactly, so on one hand, it might be a good thing that the swaying that you're seeing is actually related to your own movement, in which case it might be fine, but on the other hand, like you say, if there's kind of additional movement effects in there, it could make the whole situation much
1: worse i 've got a track IR system which I picked up for just the curiosity of seeing how immersive it makes you feel, having seen head tracking and how it can create a 3 d effect, I really wanted to see how the track IR system uh, could immerse your head they call it getting your head in the game and certainly with this a number of games that support it would be nice if elite did too because essentially what you're doing is turning your head into a controller for the looking around inside your cockpit totally different to oculus because oculus is obviously about the 3d immersion and the feed to different eyes whereas the track ir is really about where you would be using the joystick hat to look left and look right you're just turning your head a small amount it is a fantastic system with the ability to actually zoom in and zoom out by moving your head closer to the screen and further away from the screen. You've got your tilt actions. I mean, I'm mean, i playing... is, is there,
2: I'm sorry, is there not a red dwarf joke in there about where Crichton's <laughs> trying to work out the zoom function on his eyes when he becomes human? <laughs> and Lister yes. says, yeah, you just move your head closer to the object.
1: this is not a standard way of zooming actually it's one of these bizarre things but it was microsoft flight in the cockpit there where you can look down at your controls and then you can you know you move your head just slightly forward it's very minuscule movements because the first thing you think is when you've got something strapped to your head if you look to the left how do you see the screen that would be my first
2: thing because presumably even though you're moving your head your eyes have to keep tracking the monitor
1: it's all very throttled. You can set up with multiple monitors and do your calibration so that you look to the furthest left that you can see the screen comfortably and then look to the right. Centre movements are less sensitive, but as you move to the right a little bit more and a little bit to the left, then it accelerates the turn so that you can actually end up looking behind you in the cockpit on the screen without having to break your neck, which is obviously very handy.
2: That would almost put me off, though, that if I want to look at something behind me, I kind of want to turn and look. Whereas if I have to kind of do like a quarter turn, but actually what I'm seeing is like a full turn, I don't know, I think that would freak me out.
1: It works, but obviously the Oculus is going to be far more immersive in that Mm. fact because you will turn your head and look around behind you. But as I say, the only thing that concerns me about that is how the Oculus can pair up with Mm. controllers.
2: So what do we think? Is this
1: going to represent an advantage in combat? Anything that gives you one less thing to worry about and trying to use your hat controls to look around is an extra control that takes time, so being able to use your head for that's perfect. Brilliant.
0: yeah, certainly from the 3D modeling aspect that we've seen of the cockpit so far it could certainly give you just an extra point of view that maybe gives you the ability to spot an enemy just before they blow you out of the sky or space. so yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a suck it and see thing, but yeah, I do think it does have the potential of making quite a big difference. This week in Community Corner, we'll go straight into the writers section. Mr. Stroud, what's going on with the writers this week? Well, it's a little quiet. We're we're all obviously knuckling down with
3: writing, and I, you know, there's a lot of drafts in there, so we have four books all uh, all through the... in the clubhouse, as it were. The Tales from the Frontier people, though, have, have been a little bit active. They've currently got um, a few of their stories are, are at draft form, and they're discussing it amongst themselves in terms of uh, managing the editing and everything else. And also they've started releasing a podcast, not to rival us, I'll hasten to add, in case John Stabler is turning in his hotel room somewhere in uh, the middle of it, of Europe. What they are doing is they're, they're doing a, a an episodic reminisce over some of the fan fiction that was produced between First Encounters and, uh, and Elite Dangerous so that people can perhaps have a look at some of the things that had been written during that period of time. And you've got some stuff that Marco wrote. You've got some stuff that Drew wrote that's um, that's very available. And you've also got uh, some bits and pieces that John Harper wrote. So yeah, they're going and uh, reminiscing and talking about the, the development of some of that, um, that stuff. So it's worth checking out. You can find it over on their website, which is www.elite-anthology.co.uk. And uh, there's some links to uh, the elements there.
0: Great stuff. What's the latest from Frontier in terms of the writers? What's the latest sort of uh, bundle of information that Frontier Developments have pushed your way?
3: Well, at the moment, we're waiting on quite a bit because we're actually waiting on the map, and poor old Michael has an awful lot to do to get the map out. And, of course, from our position, we, we really want the map because then you can start determining your locations and working out whether the... The journeys that you've mapped down, based on the information you have to hand, actually are, are viable in the map for the new game. So it's kind of it's all waiting on that at the moment because, unfortunately, Michael has only one pair of hands and one brain, and you know, and he's working as hard as he can to to get everything together. Where we, I mean, those of us that have drafted. There are things we can carry on doing. I mean, obviously, I'm I'm working through an edit, and you know, and it will go backwards and forwards in terms of the quality of the text, which is fine. But you know, the story's kind of locked down. Really, the only scenes I will know that I need to rewrite are based on things that Frontier determine as being essentials. So that will be: can you get from this system to this system in one jump, or does it take two? And you know, what are the final things about? technology and about you know how how stuff works so yeah so you know that, that's kind of where we are
0: okay well if there's nothing else going on in the writers section let's jump on to the questions that we' received this evening from Facebook first one comes in from Robin Bilton. Lay radio guys, I have a Mac, and now that we're getting close to beta, I want to see and have a feel of the game. Uh, But beta will be Windows only, so any ideas from the team as to how to best, legally and cheaply, get the beta experience? I'm happy to run boot camp. Um, Now, I have to say, Macs are not my bag, baby, so I have no help for him whatsoever here. But uh, Grant, I believe you run Macs, don't you?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends. If it's an Intel based Mac, which most of the modern day ones are, then um, it could be as simple as a dual boot partition. But Macintosh have a, a wide range of systems available that will allow you to have Windows running under the Mac OS. And Mac OS is essentially Linux anyway. So this kind of system is always quite effective. Far better than the other way around, running Apple on Windows, which is really, really inefficient.
3: <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I have I have a work Macintosh, and um, I have one of those, or rather, I used to have one of those Macs that, um, or rather, one of those PCs that ran Mac. <laughs> so it wasn't meant to, but it did. I, I mean, one of the things I'm planning on doing is actually is trying to see if the uh, the alpha or the beta will work on the MacBook that I've got, um, which is a nicely high spec sort of uh, Intel based Mac um i would assume it's going to be bootcamp is going to be the the way to go i would assume that i mean the integration in max is a little bit more you know detailed isn't it in terms of all the the hardware and everything else is all sort of uh, integrated more into the unit but at the same time you know it's not the architecture is not hugely dissimilar anymore so i think once once you're over the bootcamp hurdle we'll we'll kind of have to see how the graphics cards of the individual computers will will handle it um, and then we'll we we'll kind of see but those of us that are in the alpha test will probably be trying this. So it's worth a, um, a check back with, with Live Radio to to see how we get
0: on. Now, obviously, you know, part of the, the Kickstarter, one of the stretch goals was that Elite Dangerous was going to make an appearance on the Mac. Can anybody remember, was it three months, six months after the initial launch that they were promising to get a, a Mac version out there? Can't
3: remember precisely but it wasn't a huge distance after the initial launch date. But at the same time, if you could run it and it wasn't too much of a degrade running it under Bootcamp, then um, it won't be that much different, I wouldn't have thought. Obviously, I would guess, Grant, that it would run better if it ran natively, but I wouldn't have thought it would be much different.
1: Natively, it would run better, but saying that, because it's Linux-based, the difference is marginal. It's all down to the amount of RAM and your graphics chipset that's the key the graphics chipset is the thing that will make it run or make it awful
0: okay well we'll keep an eye on it over the next few months and we'll certainly have a look at it in the alpha and we will report back robin also asks the second question which is in relation to the damocles video he says did frontier developments ever address the issues or problems with perception that we pointed out on the show now alan i think you've got to pick up on this
3: yeah, I do. Um, actually, one of the artists who's working on some of the stuff for Tales of the Frontier, uh, Captain N on the forums, put a fantastic post up on the 1st of October where he was discussing the use of um, something called greebling or greebles, which in, uh, in, in sort of space movies, and the example he's put up is in Star Wars, um, they Basically, what they do is they add lots of unnecessary detail into large ships to create the impression of scale between the large ships further away from the camera and smaller ships nearer the camera. Um, and what he's done is he's, he's put a, a lovely sort of still shot from, I think it's Empire Strikes Back, and compared that to the um, a still shot from uh, the Capital Ship video. And the thing that you do notice in the Capital Ship video is that the the big ships do have these very very clean lines, um, and I think his his point has been about um, trying to to determine the, you know, the the simple massiveness of something. This unnecessary detail does give something more, in terms of bringing out detail and, and, and making ships feel as if they're bigger. I think that's certainly something that uh, that is useful in picking up, and I'm hoping that uh, the frontier of taking it on board and uh, and read what he said.
0: Great stuff, okay. Well, Phil uh, Pentox also uh, sends the question which is, uh, where does Lave Radio transmit from? Uh, do you have a permanent offices or are you a Radio Caroline type outfit? Um, do you offer Lave Radio tours to the public, and where do I buy my Lave Radio T-shirts and Orange Sidewinder baseball caps? Uh, well, no tours, definitely no tours. We're not that. Uh, we don't like the members of the general public on uh, wandering around the ship. But we do actually uh, broadcast out of the Orange Sidewinder, which is on level two of the space station in dry dock at the moment. Uh, it has been there for quite some time it is in theory still spaceworthy but uh, at the moment it just lives in dry dock okay another question coming in this time from exagger um, basically asking us what our thoughts are on the name of the founder system again the founder system is one of the reward benefits that came from the Kickstarter uh, that those people that pledged at a certain level would be given access to uh, the founder system and within the founder system there would be some benefits better prices and uh, maybe some better equipment, that sort of thing. I'm going to horribly butcher the name here, but uh, the name as I can read it for the Founders System is Shinrata Desra, do agree with that pronunciation?
3: I think you did pretty well, yeah.
0: Okay, we'll go with that then, we'll go with Shinrata Desra. What do people think about it? Obviously this was uh, one of the reward pledges that was picked up by someone uh, on the Kickstarter, you, know, you paid enough money you could actually name the Founders System. Uh, and that's what he's come up with, uh, well, Shinrata Desra.
3: Yes, it, it was named. It was named by Lequa. I mean, anybody that that follows the forums in in detail, lequa has, has been quite a, you know a prolific poster, very positive and also uh, you know, critical at times in relation to proposals and everything else, which I think is great. You know, constructive criticism. He's a, an excellent contributor. What we have here is obviously is something that he's decided to to bring a, a meaning to. He's spoken to Frontier in relation to what that meaning is. And I'm sure we will get more information when, uh, when we start to play the game. I would guess there is a small, at the moment, there is a small issue with the fact that players may not know what characters would know. Because if you were a founder, if you were a backer, and you, you got to founder status, then you might have an idea of knowing what your planet, why your planet was named what it's named. And he has stated that there is a reason behind the name. Now, I think what people are perhaps missing is that, you know, we're still six months away from launch date. So at the end of the day, if certain backers at the founder level or anything else um, find out what their, you know, their planet's called when it you know when we actually get to or why it's called what it's called when we get to, to launch, then I think that's fine. At the same time, you know, if you don't know then it's something to find out, and actually, the the dichotomy between you know what a player knows and what a character knows, it's not it's not horrendous, is it? You know, at the end of the day, the fact that it means something and the fact that there's a story behind it, I think you know adds game. So sounds good to me.
2: So sorry. So is this is this a system for backers, or does each backer that backed at this level
3: have their own system? It's called the Founder System. It is essentially it is one specific system known as the Founder System, which is a special place. That um, backers at a certain tier can start at, and and can be founders effectively, and you can see it down your pledge tier side. So I think, as I say, I think it's 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 quite high And that you know I mean obviously the pledge itself to um, to get it was quite high, but um, be a founding member of the elite in the game plus all rewards above is at 150 pounds. So um, I'm assuming that the founding member of the elite is a founder and that is part of the founders' system so so
2: have they decided who's named it
3: Uh, that is a pledge tier at five thousand pounds
2: right right so that was my misunderstanding
1: you can tell he likes game of thrones because it does sound like a character from game of thrones
3: (laughs) 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 yeah or or, you know some sort of character from the old world in game of thrones not uh, necessarily in westeros yeah
1: Oh, just somebody that Khaleesi met in their travels, yeah. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, someone from the old world, yeah. As
1: long as in the years'
2: time we don't get dragged across the coals by the media because it translates in some obscure dialects to read Death to the West or something like that. Mm.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That'd be good. (laughs) Hold on,
0: Grant, did you just say that would be good?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That kind of revelation would be fantastic. What was the name again? Say it again for us, Chris.
2: Shinrata Desra.
1: I did just Google it. and Nothing came up. Shinra Dezra?: Well,
2: I might have had the spelling wrong. But
1: actually, if you say that backwards, is that not Arst? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Well, let's uh, let, let's leave that one alone for the time being. That, that's all the questions we've got this week. Uh, shout-outs this week. Yes, a shout-outs. Um, community member Marco
2: is mentioned in the newsletter. Uh, he started writing a series of interviews. Uh, over on his website hookedgamers.com where he's you know talking to elite authors uh, and getting a kind of up-to-date interview with with where they are with things so uh good luck with that marco another important thing is that i don't know if our listeners are aware but recently there's been a decision at the bbc to axe the sky at night obviously a long-running and in you know and in some communities very very popular astronomy show. Interestingly enough, this is quite close to my heart because my, my brother's doing a uh, some sort of course. <laughs> Sounds dreadful, I'm not sure what it is. I think he's doing a PhD in astronomy, but I'm not sure if that's the actual detail right. But, but anyway, I mean, he's obviously very passionate about it and he's made the point to me that actually if the sky at night goes from television, there will actually be nothing on any channel anywhere that is broadcast about astronomy. And I guess, you know, whether or not you're, you're, you're interested in it as a hobby um, or whether or not you just want to balance, you know, kind of practical scientific programming with the fact that we have hours of programming of fucking haunted houses on TV every week. You know, it is a travesty that there will be nothing on TV to represent astronomy. So thankfully, Frontier Developments have got behind this and they've included the link to the petition to keep the sky at night on air in the Elite Dangerous newsletter. Um, and obviously, you know, i personally like to, to, to fully back that. And if people want to find the, the petition about the sky at night, um, it's about you go to www.change.org and hopefully search for the sky at night and it should come up. So, yeah, great. Thanks to uh, Frontier Developments for supporting that course. I also shouted at the beginning of the podcast, Ken White from the, the Machinima podcast. Um, his website for the podcast is tmoaradio.com. And Leeson Fisher from the uh, Radio Rassilon podcast uh, can be found at radiorassilon.podbean.com.
0: Okay, and lastly for Community Corner, we're going to highlight a new community initiative that has launched over on the forums. So you may have come across the charity Movember. This is a charity that highlights men's health and well-being specifically around the, the issue of prostate and testicular cancer. What the community have done so far is they've set up their own team, the Elite Dangerous MOBRA Mark III team over on the Movember website. Now, obviously, the Elite community has shown in the past to be a very uh, passionate and fun-loving group of people So the feeling was, what better way to demonstrate this to the world at large than for everybody in the Elite community to get on board and grow a fabulous moustache during the month of November and get sponsored whilst they do it. Uh, Frontier Developments have got behind the campaign, and like us, they will be providing updates and raising awareness of the project throughout the month. Uh, They have sent out an internal memo asking for some of the development team to take part as well. Indeed, senior producer Michael Brooks has gone as far as to lay down an early challenge to the team. Michael Brooks, you may remember from his appearances on the Fiction Update, has cultivated a most glorious facial rug. Uh, He has offered to shave this off and join the team if the community can raise £600 before the 1st of November. Uh, As of this recording, the Mobra Mark III team is currently sitting at £350, so well on the way to having a clean-shaven Wookiee on the next Fiction Update. Uh, the Lave Radio team are happy to support this project, and myself, John, and Chris will be facially naked on the first of November. The Retro Lave crew have also agreed to take part, so please do get involved and head over to the Movember website and search for Elite Dangerous. Uh, we will keep you up to date on future episodes.
1: But you do realise, uh, mate, I can't grow a moustache, but I can grow a long series of hairs on my lip. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what's after Movember? Is it December beard? <laughs> it's
2: January. So, yeah, yeah that's,
1: I, I was thinking of Feb Brazilian as well, but that doesn't <laughs> quite work. But January could be fun.
2: <laughs> I think I think I should do a mo a, a, a mo for November on the basis that since Eden was born, I seem to have stopped shaving. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, this is the thing—you've actually got to shave on uh, November the first, so you've got to be oh, clean-shaven.
2: Yeah, so that would that would never work. So it's. Uh... And presumably, to keep it a moustache, I'd have to actually shave the rest of my face. I was going to say the rest of me, but that's more information than you need.
1: <laughs> how, how big does your moustache grow? All the <laughs> way down. <clears throat> uh,
0: Fu Manchu um... and then some. <laughs> <laughs> well that's it for another episode of lay radio if you'd like to contact the show you can at info at you can find us on twitter at laveradio. radio you can search for us on facebook if you'd like to give us a call on skype and leave us a voice message you can at Lave.radio. if you'd like to take part in retro Lave, then you can contact us on skype we muster at 8 30 on mondays and thank you very much to alan grant and chris we're going to power down the sidewinder and see you next episode